was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to the 100th episode of Backstage Babble. This is the 100th time I'll say that Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. This is so exciting for me, and I thank you all for tuning in. For those of you who have heard all of the first 99 or close to that, I thank you so much for your support. Without you, I could never have done this podcast. And for those who are new, I hope you like what you hear and that you stay for the next 100. Today's episode is an interview with a true Broadway icon, the great Harvey Firestein. I don't think I even need to read Mr. Firestein's credits, but he is the author or co-author author of such shows as Torch Song Trilogy, for which she won a Tony, Safe Sex, Newsies, Casa Valentina, La Cage Fall, Kinky Boots, Legs Diamond, and A Catered Affair. He has also starred on Broadway in Hairspray and Fiddler on the Roof, and revised the book for the upcoming production of Funny Girl. If you want to hear more stories than in this episode, make sure to buy his new memoir, I Was Better Last Night. So now, without further ado, one of Broadway's most famous voices, Harvey Firestein. I'm telling Charlie the doggy not to bother you. <laughs> right? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Oh, you know, Charlie, come here. Charlie, come here. Get your fat ass over here. Come here. <laughs> yes, Charlie. Okay, let's get this shit started. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Thank you again for doing this. It's so. Uh, what the fuck? Let's, yeah, so, let's do it. So I'd love to start by asking you um, how you first became interested in theater. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't, really. Um, I was an art student, and, and, um, and a friend of mine in, in, in high school I went to art and design. You know where that is? It's on 57th Street and 2nd oh. Avenue. And so I, went, I was going to art and design. I, was, I think it was in my second year. And, um, and I had a friend who said that her mother was starting a theater group in Brooklyn and needed volunteers to make posters because we were all art students. So, um, so we went down to this church in Flatbush, um, the Unitarian, I think it was Unitarian, no. Forget about the, there was a little teeny church on Beverly Road. And um, we went down there and, um, and made posters you know, handmade posters for their first production, uh, which was the Apollo of Black and Not Enough Rope, two one-act plays that didn't need sets or anything. <clears throat> and um, I don't know whether I just got stoned off the magic markers or whatever, but she asked if anybody wanted to pull curtains or turn lights or whatever. So my friend Michael and I volunteered. Oh, and so... And here I am at 69 years old in theater. <laughs> what the hell? And so how did you, um, did you always have this, this voice that you have that's become so iconic or did that, did that come? No, that, that developed over the years. Oh. One develops such things. <laughs> okay. 
babies don't often talk this way. <laughs> right, Charlie? And so um, what were some of the early shows that you saw once you, once you were interested? Oh, no, 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 no. Didn't work that way at all. Oh. And not the way it worked at all. Um, my mother loved the theater, um, as many Jewish mothers do. And, uh, and she, uh, back in those days, there was a magazine called Q Magazine, C-U-E. That was the precursor to New York Magazine. And it had um, all the movies, all the, uh, the shows, uh, television, it covered everything Q. Um, the, in entertainment, she got that every week. And every week she would see what new shows were opening and she mailed away for tickets. Broadway shows back then were, you know, you could, she always bought the first row dead center of the mezzanine, which was about $3 the ticket. So our family of four could go to the theater for $12. Can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing Fiddler on the Roof for $12 for a family of four? We saw everything, Oliver, uh, um, 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 the Sound of Music. Uh, I mean, whatever it was, we saw everything, uh, we, which also meant we went to the ballet and, uh, and the opera, which I, I, years later, I, I, I began to, uh, to enjoy opera, but not when I was a kid. And um, we saw, you know, the, at the Royal uh, Shakespeare Company came to town, we saw it. There was one funny story. My mother had prepared us to see, um, it was the Royal Shakespeare Company, I know, to see that Scottish play and, um, and sat my brother and I down and told us the whole story so we know everything that was going on, broke it down scene by scene. And I think I even had the classic comic book. Do you know about classic comic books? I you don't. Do? I, oh, you don't. No. Um, they were comic books and you could probably find them easily on eBay. Um, they, but back then there were comic books called classic comic books where they took famous novels, plays, whatever, and did them as comic books. So uh, a student who didn't read well could buy the classic comic book and, and, and read a novel as if it was a, a comic book and it was very helpful. So we even had the comic book of, of the Scottish play and we got to the theater and, and we sat in our seats the same first row of the dead center of the mezzanine and the curtain went up on Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and we were like, and she, so she had to huddle us together and quickly explain the story of Romeo and Juliet to these two kids that didn't really, I mean, I think she picked the other one because they had a lot of knives and crap. This one, well, this one had, you did have the fight scene that started and all that. But still, it was a that was a that was a rough one. Okay. And so, even though your uh, mother loved the theater, did she want you to be in the theater? Did she say no, 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 nothing. <laughs> like no, no, no. She wanted. Uh, you you know I'm Jewish, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> so what? Did they want them in theater? No, no. Nobody wants their kids to starve. No. So I was supposed to be. Um, a lawyer and my brother was going to be a doctor. So he was a lawyer because he had a big mouth and my brother liked school. So he was going to be the doctor. And that's what we were called, the, the lawyer and the doctor. And uh, that's what we were supposed to be. So how did your uh, work with Andy Warhol begin? The play that you did with Andy Warhol? Oh, you really jump around in my life. Okay. <laughs> I can't wait to. 
I, I just want to mail you my book because you'll enjoy that. It has all these answers. Um, um, how did that? Well, I, as I said, I was an art student and I was, uh, I'd been doing theater with my community theater group for, for years already. I was a founding member. As it turned out, I became a founding member of that theater group, which still exists. They're still there in Park Slope. Um, they're, they're called the Gallery Players. They're still there in Park Slope. And, um, and I had done, but I was an art student. And so it was 1971. And um, so I was in my second year of college. I went to Pratt for painting and, and took a minor in education because at least I could make a living as a teacher if, you know, wasn't gonna make it as an artist, obviously. And, um, and we did at the theater, we did Barefoot in the Park. And they gave me the role of the telephone man, even though I was 17 years old. Um, we, we stippled on a sort of beard, you know, and I, and I had long hair, so we put that under a, a hat. Um, so so um, somebody came down and reviewed the show from that, that newspaper, um, um, what is it called? Uh, uh, like show business or backstage. You know, we and we did, you know, we got reviewed every now and then, of course, you know, because you bought ads in the papers, so they came and reviewed you. Um, but anyway, um, uh, somebody came down from one of those papers and gave me like this rave review, uh, you know, just said how funny I was and how great I was in that role. Like I said, I was only like 17, 16, 17. Um, and, uh, you know, I was all excited. And on the back of that, um, was a, was a casting call for Andy Warhol um, doing um, Port. And um, and I loved Warhol. I loved Warhol. Not, I didn't know so much of his, his fine artwork at that time. It was mostly his illustration. I don't know if you know, he was a commercial artist. Yes, yes. Mostly made his, his living doing Bloomingdale's ads and stuff like that. He drew shoes, a lot of shoes. And every Sunday when the Sunday Times would come, I'd go right to those ads to see these Warhol drawings, which I absolutely loved. And um, so I was a big fan of his. And he had started doing the, you know, the movies and all that. And, and I even had a friend who who worked at his, he had a movie theater called the Garrick, which I don't know, I'm McDougal, I don't know what it is now. It was a little tiny movie theater. And I had a friend who was the box office guy at the Garrick Theater, his name was George. Anyway, um, so I saw this ad looking for actors and I said, well, I could fake it because of my community theater stuff and go down and meet Andy Warhol. You know, I figured, what the fuck? I didn't know anything from theater. I certainly didn't know anything from off-off-Broadway or the underground theater or any of that shit. You know, sometimes it's better not to know. Because <laughs> if I knew anything, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I didn't know that shit. So, um, so I got on the subway, and I took the subway down to East 4th Street and um, was walking up and down the block looking for something called La Mama. Um, and I could, you know, there was the Truck and Warehouse Theater. There was the 82 Club, which was the last drag club in New York. There was the, um, what was it called then? It's a New York Theater Ensemble, but it had a different name back then. Um, anyway, it's, it's still there on the block. There was something else that looked like a theater, but there was no La Mama. And there was a black woman sweeping the sidewalk. And she said, baby, are you lost? And I said, 
I'm looking for something called La Mama. So she said, this is it. And I said, there's nothing. It was a brown wooden door, like with a glass window, like that high. And it was high. You couldn't like even see it. It was only that big, two glass windows on these two big wooden doors. And she said, this, I said, this. And then over the door, I noticed there was a little brass plaque, maybe that big, that said La Mama ETC. So I said, this is a theater? She said, yeah. I said, how do you know? She said, because I'm La Mama. It was Ellen Stewart sweeping the sidewalk. So she said, get on in. So I went in and there was a lobby full of people and I signed up and like I said, if you don't know, you're not scared. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you don't know what you're doing. So, um, so my name got called. I mean, I had printed my own, my own eight by 10, I was an art student. So I printed my own eight by 10, you know, typed out my own resume with all these credits from the gallery players in Brooklyn, like anybody would care about the gallery players in Brooklyn. And, um, and I went in and, and there were these rather strange people around. And, um, and, and this, this guy said, um, uh, you have something prepared. And they were sort of laughing at me. Um, I didn't know why. Um, so straight compared to, to all of them. And um, anyway, I had um, I had the um, balcony scene from from Romeo and Juliet, Juliet's part. So I did it, <laughs> and they laughed. And um, I didn't think it was so funny, but whatever. Um, I thought I was good. <laughs> anyway, I got cast. And what was it like to be in in rehearsal with Andy Warhol? Well, he wasn't there. That's the other thing. Warhol, oh. Warhol doesn't do anything. <laughs> Warhol is the idea man, you know, that's the great part about Warhol. Um, he, he, um, he, you know, he does as little, he did as little as possible. Um, so what, what, what the play was, was um, Andy used to turn on a tape recorder in his office all the time and tape anybody who came in. And there was this woman, Bridget, Bridget, I forget what her real last name was. I look it up in the book, but they called her Bridget Polk. Polk, which they spelled P-O-L-K, but they really were making a pun on P-O-K-E because she would shoot anybody up with, with uh, speed that wanted, she was a speed freak. She was always dieting. So she would take amphetamines. And the way that you took amphetamines back then was shoot them up. It was a different time. So they called her Bridget Polk and the play was, and then they, and, and, and so she'd go into the office and she'd tell these terrible stories about her mother and how mean her mother was. She had a very rich mother. And, um, and Andy taped all of this crap. That was, whatever was going on in his office, he taped, and he took all these tapes and he gave it to this wonderful avant-garde director named Anthony Ingracia, Tony Ingracia. And Tony, um, would get stoned and play these tapes. And whenever something really funny happened, he would just cut that part of the tape out, take a piece of scotch tape and stick it to the wall. This is how real art is made, Charles. This is how real art is made. Um, when he had a lot of tapes, he stuck them together, um, gave them to a typist, said, the different voices, just name them A, B, C, D, whatever. She typed up whatever this thing was. He then went back and edited, and that was the script for something called Pork, 
They changed it from, from poke to poke to pork. So, and all of a sudden we were doing a play called Pork. Here's, and, um, and then I was, so I was stuck in there. Um, there was no role for me. He got, and he only cast, out of all the people that auditioned, he only cast, I think, two people from the auditions. Everyone else were friends of his or people that he, because, you know, you have to have open auditions, you know, the rules, equity rules. So how did this sort of evolve into your having the premiere of the international stud at La Mama? Oh, Googie. Googie, that's a million years. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, no, it's, oh, Cookie. Um, I mean, I got, so I got involved in, in the off-off-Broadway movement, which I had no idea what it was, but all of a sudden I was in the middle of it and, um, and was involved in lots of different theaters. There were, back then, there was, I mean, all you had to do was turn your head and it was a different theater group. There was the, 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 the Playhouse of the Ridiculous and the Ridiculous Theatrical Company and WPA and Theater Genesis and... I mean, just everywhere you look, the Dove Company, there were theaters. And so um, I sort of decided that um, everybody, what happened was I was too young. The show was a big hit at La Mama. This, this stupid art gallery owner, a Warhol's art gallery owner in London, decided to take it to London rather than move it in New York. Um, took it to London and they found out how old I was and they didn't let me go because I was oh. underage. So they all went off to London to become big stars. <laughs> and um, and I was left behind with working at a Jewish camp, at a, at a summer camp as a, as a counselor. So I'm up at this summer camp thinking, I just did a play with Andy Warhol and now I'm a summer camp counselor. This is not going the way I thought it might. So I quit the job at the summer camp counselor, the sleepaway counselor came home and, um, and I couldn't go back to school till September and I needed a job. So I, I bought backstage and showbiz whatever. Um, and I try and I, and the regular want ads and I equally tried for acting jobs and regular jobs, something to pay bills, you know, cause what a Jewish mother who is not gonna leave me sitting around all summer at home. Um, so, and, and, and so, you know, so all of a sudden I was involved in all of these different theater groups and um, just kept, it, it's hard to explain to somebody with your kind of ambition. I mean, you, you're so focused and you so know what you want. And I didn't, and I couldn't have cared less. And I wasn't, I never wanted to be a playwright. I never wanted to be an actor. I never wanted to be on Broadway um, until it happened. You know, then I did, you know, obviously I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> but, but it wasn't like, I mean, you're like so focused. It's, I, I don't, I wonder what it sounds like to you to know somebody who did all this stuff without planning on doing any of it. I mean, I, I just as easily, not as happily, but just as easily could have ended up a New York City school teacher the rest of my life or, or doing, I talk in the book about um, my ceramic work. There was a point where I would have 
happily gone into the world of ceramics and, and given up theater and all that. But um, these people uh, rejected my work and I said, well, fuck you. And I went the other way. Life, is, life can be that way. Um, life doesn't always have to be a really focused thing. And I think for somebody like you, you're gonna be a huge success because you are what you are. But I know a lot of people that are equally focused that I wouldn't bet 15 cents on. You probably do also. You probably know some kids that, are, that know what they wanna do and you look at them and go, yeah, no, it's not gonna happen. So, um, so it's, it's, it, that's what's so interesting about life. But, but the best thing about life and best thing, certainly the le- if it was a lesson in my life, it's that um, things only get better when you say yes. Now, if you say no, nothing changes. You wanna to go to the movies? No. So, well, you don't go see that movie. You never saw that movie. Whatever happened at the movie couldn't have happened. Um, whatever adventure might've been there ain't gonna happen because you stayed home. Yeah. But if you say yes and you go to the movies, all right, maybe you saw a shitty movie and nothing happened. Or maybe you met the love of your life. Or maybe it was the movie that, said, that made you say, I could do this. Um, you just, you, you know, but life only gets better when you say yes, or life, not better. Life only changes when you say yes. Doesn't necessarily get better. <laughs> Sometimes it gets a lot So, and so that's, so you say, how did I end up with international student? Cookie, the, uh, 4 billion little tiny things had to happen over uh, 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 I mean, because Indianapolis, that wasn't the first play I wrote, and I didn't, and I didn't want to be a playwright. I had no desire to be a playwright. But a friend of mine who was a playwright said, why don't you write a play? And I said, I can't write a play because I can't spell. And he said, well, there's people that get $3 an hour who can spell, go ahead and write a play. So I wrote a play. Threw it in the garbage, wrote another one. Put it on. Village Voice called me the devil come to earth. I said, okay, I'm on to something. <laughs> Life. Yeah. Life. And so to go to the, uh, when you did write uh, the international stunt, did oh, you- Oh, stuck on that back room scene. You just want to know about that nasty boy stuff. What's it about? <laughs> so when you when you did write that, um, did you have a trilogy in mind or- Oh, that's another, oh. Oh, you guys, long stories. These are long stories, Charles. There's, a, there's nothing simple. There's no simple answers in my life. Everything is a long story. No, I wrote, I wrote the back room scene, the scene where, I, where, where he has sex in the back room of the bar. I wrote that first. And I wrote that after staying out all night and actually having that happen and then like, I don't know, five o'clock in the morning, sitting outside some, uh, I think it was Sheridan Square. Um, I took out my notebook. I couldn't go home to Brooklyn because I had to be at a meeting at La Mama like at nine and to go all the way back to Brooklyn and then come back. So rather I just stayed out all night. Um, when you're young, you can do that shit. And then the city was probably safer than, well, downtown was safer than. So I had this sexual experience sat down in Sheridan Square with, the, with my notebook. Because remember, I was living this sort of triple life. I, was, I had my, my school life, going to Pratt, 
Then I had my theater life, you know, whatever that was. And then I had this social life, which was, um, how do you even describe it to somebody who's young? Um, I was a street queen. I mean, that's what you would have called it back then. Um, somebody who hung out, who didn't have any money, um, who hung out on the street uh, with with other with other street queens, um, some drag queens, some hustlers, some um, um, uh, uh, transvestite prostitutes. Um, like, uh, do you do you know about Marsha P. Johnson? Yes, yes, I'm so Okay, wondering. so like, so, yes, yeah, so Marsha was one of one of the people. Yes, all the queens in the Stonewall. We all hung out on Christmas Street. And, um, you know, and so that was that other life. So, so, and you, and you, you know, Sheridan Square is right outside the Stonewall, right? But this is years after, this is years after the Stonewall. I was too young to, to be at the Stonewall. Uh, so, so anyways, I had this experience. I sat down and I wrote that, I wrote that monologue. And then somebody, um, Crystal Field, who I, think is still around. Is Crystal still around? Oh, yes. Actually, I interviewed her um, a few months ago. So Crystal <laughs> Field said, I'm doing a bicentennial show. She had, she had, rotten bitch, had taken over our theater. She, we had a theater that we built um, um, on, on um, it was called Theater of the Lost Continent. And um, it was uh, Jane Street and West, the corner of Jane West, Jane West Hotel is there. And we took the ballroom and we, the Tavell brothers, you know who they are? They're both dead now. Ronald Tavell created the Theater of the Ridiculous. Oh. And, he wrote, and he wrote all the early Warhol movies, Chelsea Girls and all that stuff. That's Ronald Tavell and his brother Harvey. And Harvey was a New York City school teacher and Harvey, took his salary and supported Ron's career with it. But Ron created the ridiculous movement. You know, then John Vaccaro split off and Charles Ludlam split off and Ronald created the, then created the, the Theater of the Lost Continent. So we were at the Theater of the Lost Continent and Crystal knew that we were running out of money and uh, she turned us in and she got the theater, that bitch. But um, <laughs> anyway, oh, water under the bridge. Um, <laughs> So, so she was doing this bicentennial, which to tell you what year, what year would that have been? Oh, 1976. Very good. I threw some math and shit in here. I have to make sure you're getting educated while we're doing this. So yes, so it was 1975 and, um, yeah, 75. And, and she was doing this bicentennial play festival and she called me and said, do you have a one act to do? And I said, oh, I have that monologue. I wonder if getting fucked in a back room counts as bicentennial. Well, why not? It's what I had. <laughs> so so I, I booked a, a spot in the bicentennial festival and um, performed this thing which I had no idea whether I, I, I had, it was something I had written. Um, I had no idea what it was gonna, you know, you're alone on stage with a beer can and a cigarette and getting fucked up the ass. Ah, birthday America, I don't know. Um, anyway, huge hit, <laughs> huge hit. <laughs> I think everybody was bored with the 
flags and stuff. So it, it was a huge hit. Crystal even asked me to come back again during the festival and do it again. So I ha sort of had that in uh, in my back pocket that was sort of existed. And then time went by, I had an affair with a guy. Well, actually it was during that that I was having an affair with the guy, we broke up. Um, I got the idea and then then I wrote the rest of International Stud and I put that into International and It's a really long story, Charles. You, you get the book. You, you, oh, yeah. If you get the book. You know what? We'll make it into a classic comic book. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, so I'll, I'll... No, it's not a trilogy. No, okay. what happened was, what happened was, my friend Eric, Eric Conklin was... With, with this, with the um, the Trocadero Ballet, you know the drag ballet. Do you know them at all? So the yes. tra the original Trocadero, not the one that exists now. This was the original Trocadero Ballet, which is an all male ballet company, and they did it very straight. They did not camp at all. The ballet company that exists now is a little campier. I love them, but they're different. Well, Eric was was a, one of the ballerinas from that, and um, and we were friends, and and. Um, and he was the stage manager of a couple of shows I did in Boston and stuff. Anyway, so so um, when I wrote International Stud, uh, nobody wanted to direct it, um, and Eric said he would, and um, and I so I said, well, I'll, I'm going to go to Ellen Stewart and get a and try and get a space. And Ellen and I, um, by then I'd been working for her for four years now, so you know on and off, but I was. Ellen had really taken me under her wing. It was, she was a very important person in my life. And, um, and she had sort of put her foot down that she didn't want me doing drag anymore. She said, my baby don't wear bloomers no more. She, she said, you know, I have other children here. You look at those children, Mr. Feierstein, and that is all they can do. And they run around their bloomers and they sing their songs and I'm happy for them and I'm happy to put them on here at my theater, but that's as far as it, but I think you have more. I think there's something else for you. So you got to get out of the bloomers. And uh, so I brought up the script and she said, uh, do you wear bloomers in it? And I said, yeah, only in one scene. She said, I told you I'm not doing it. I said, Ellen, it's one scene. It's the opening scene. I'm in drag, but not anything after that. She, but and long story short, she, she owed me a favor. Uh, she, she, it just told me my internet is unstable. You know, I don't pick on your internet. Um, um, anyway, she, she, she owed me because I was doing this program for her so she owed me a favor so she said all right i'll do it and um and eric said tell her it's a trilogy and i said why would i tell her it's a trilogy he said that way we don't have to fight for his space next year you know because it was always a fight you know there's limited there were two theaters upstairs down well there was also the big theater but that was the, the annex um but you know there was always a battle for who could get space and so i said it's a trilogy um, you, you people in your trilogies, because Andre Serban, don't know if you know who he is, but Andre Serban had just done the Greek trilogy there, which he then sent all over the world, it, it toured all over the world, uh, big successful Amama. So I told you it was a trilogy, so that's how it ended up being a trilogy. I had no idea I was writing a trilogy. So, but again, life, you say yes. You end up with a trilogy. You say no, and uh, you don't end up with a trilogy. Yeah. 
So how many of the characters in, in the trilogy, were they all based directly on people you knew or were some of them invented? Everything you, everything you write is you. Yeah. You ever hear that in a dream? When you dream, even when you dream people you know, they're all you. Um, and it's the same for writers. You can base them on other people, but they still are. When I was sat down to write my autobiography, I asked Shirley MacLaine, because Shirley has written like 400 autobiographies. So I said, what the fuck? And she said, write what you remember. Memory has a, time has a way of editing out the stuff that's not important. And I said, but what about when you're writing about other people? There are so many people in my life that are dead now. And I want, and, and their stories will never be told. And I want to represent them well. And I want their, I want their stories to be told. And she said, you have to tell it through you. No matter what you do, it's always being filtered through you, just like when you write a play. And, I, and, and it's absolutely true. You can say, well, I based it on so-and-so, but it's filtered through you, so you're writing it. So is the mother based on my mother? Yeah, but it's my, it's, but I'm the mother too, is, you know. So there were, there were people I used as models because you do, you, that's how you do it. Um, but, but essentially, I would, say you know this is a spinning impso or you know um and uh, yeah, yeah yeah like that and so this is sort of uh, we can um come back but i want to ask you about uh one of these famous people you worked with later um who might be sort of difficult to talk about which is arthur lawrence um, this isn't difficult to talk about oh. he's a horrible person but he's not difficult to talk about <laughs> Um, I, I loved Arthur in this, and, and once again, in the book, um, I go into great detail about, about writing Lacage and, and, and our whole relationship uh, through that. Arthur was, Arthur, there was a group of people, I'll tell this quickly, uh, and in a way that, that will mean something to you. Um, years ago, um, I was doing um, um, a murder she wrote. Oh, uh, Angela Lansbury show, and uh, George Firth was in that cast. You know who George is. Writing company. He, he wrote. wrote company. Yes, he wrote company. He wrote. Yes. Okay. So George Firth was in that. Was in. Was another actor. And he said, "What are you doing for dinner tonight?" I said, "Nothing." He said, "Come with me. We're going to go out for dinner." And he drove me up. Mulholland Drive to Warren Beatty's house. Oh, wow. Well, he arrived in Warren Beatty's house. Warren Beatty was then married to, well, he's still married to her, but it was sort of new. Annette Benning, they had little kids at the time and all that. And uh, Warren Beatty sat me down by his gorgeous swimming pool overlooking all of the world, you know, on top of a mountain, very, very Hollywood, very scene out of some Hollywood movie, and said, I want you to write my story. And I said, what story is that? And he said, a young man who arrives in New York and becomes part of a group of, of other men that were a little older and all of them were gay. And he's the only straight one. And they all want to fuck him. 
and, 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 and I said, um, interesting. And I said, and who was the group? And it was Arthur Lawrence, Stephen Soundheim, Leonard Bernstein. Um, I guess Jerry Robbins was still part of that group. I don't remember. Um, um, but anyway, that was, that was the group. And I said, you're fucking kidding me. I, nobody, nobody, no one can write, you know, no one can write that. I mean, and, and I've read lots of other, of other people's accounts of it. And I've always wanted, and after Arthur, I, I said I couldn't do it because of our, my relationship with Arthur, because some of the stories he started telling me. Um, and, and, uh, and I said, I couldn't do it. And then I said, well, maybe I could do it now after Arthur died. And then I said, oh, I can't do it um, because because uh, Leonard Bernstein had died and Arthur had died. And I said, I can't do it because of Steve. And now Steve's dead. And I sort of actually the past couple of weeks, it's been one of the thoughts that's come to me is I should call Warren and see if he still wants to do it. What was it, like 30 years later? <laughs> hey, Warren, you want to tell those stories to me? Maybe it's time. Um, anyway, so Arthur was a complicated. So Arthur was in this group uh, that you had to do well. They were very competitive with one another. They were all, I mean, they were all geniuses. I mean, had you heard those names? Who would you throw out of that group? Who would you say, you can play Dungeons and Dragons with me? They were all geniuses. And, and, um, <sighs> And Arthur was little, and um, and that I think weighed on him as well. Um, he thought he was really gorgeous, which you know was another thing. He thought every, everyone wanted to sleep with him. Oh my God, you know he was just the hottest thing in the world. Um, <laughs> but but that's the way Arthur was. Um, he was very smart. Uh, he knew it all, and he did know a lot. Um, but he could be very, he, <clears throat> very hard to describe Arthur, very difficult, mean, mean. He, he had a real mean streak in him. Um, there's, there's legends about different people happens to be true, Arthur happened to be the actual person that did it, of having a table, he had a drum table in his living room, and on it he had little frames with photographs of all of his friends. And if he was mad at you, he'd turn it around. <laughs> he'd turn the picture around. So you'd go to his house and you'd see who he wasn't talking to that week. <laughs> that was Arthur. I mean, you know, mean. When I'll tell you this, this story's in the book, but but I think I think this this really sums up Arthur without when when um it was when they came to me for, and said Arthur was gonna direct La Cage Fall. I told Shirley. Um and she said, tell, no, no, tell him anybody else, not Arthur. I said, Shirley, what are you talking about? Just you don't want to work with Arthur. I said, Shirley, he just wrote turning point for you. You know, one of one of the greatest roles you ever had. You've known him for years. Well, she said, no, you don't want to work about. I said, she said, okay. It's your birthday. A hundred of your friends want to throw you a party and just so you know how much they love you. 
So you walk into the room and there's a hundred people who absolutely adore you. They've only come out just to be with you. They all want to get next to you and kiss you and hug you. But Arthur's there and Arthur's mad at you. Those other hundred people cannot save you from that misery of that man. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, oh, you're, you're, you're exaggerating. All right. Two years later, we had written La Cache It's a huge hit on Broadway. We get to the Tony Awards. It wins all those Tony Awards. We're at the finale of the Tony Award broadcast. And that year they had... Um, the whole stage had a big um, system of risers so that everybody who had been in the show, all the nominees, all the performers, all the people who had presented were all on these risers. We all stood on these risers um, for the final credits as, and we all sang the best of times, the finale of, of Lakash. I have a photograph. I have photographic proof, it's in the book. And I would show it to you now, but uh, I can't make this work. Standing in front of me was Arthur. Well, off to a little bit to the side was Arthur and Shirley MacLaine. And everyone else is smiling and laughing and singing the best of times. And there's Arthur. There's Shirley looking miserable and Arthur pointing at her as he gave her notes on what was wrong with her one woman show she'd done that year. <laughs> It's the finale of the Tony Awards, and he's giving her notes about what she did wrong in her one-woman show, which was already closed. You know, it wasn't like he was helping her. He just had to tell her what she did wrong in the middle of the finale. And I told that story somewhere, and a New York Post photographer heard me tell the story and mailed me the photograph he had of, of that moment. Wow. Which I have in the book. The other, the other person that that sort of has a look on her face is Raquel Welsh. She's like, "What's going on with you?" Because <laughs> she can see Shirley was all upset, and I'm sort of like, a, I look on my face and sort of like, <laughs> anyway, that's Arthur. So when you were writing on uh, Lakaka Fall, did you ever think that you would go on to star in it as you did in the most recent revival? Oh, no. Uh -oh. oh, definitely not. Well, well, remember, I was in my 20s. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I was writing a character. I mean, one of the things that has always pissed me about Lakaka is I was writing characters that were 40 years old. You know, Georges and Albin were in a show. They were in their 20s. Uh, George had an affair with a with a chorus girl, had a baby. The kid's now twenty. He was twenty. He's forty now. And they always cast sixty year olds and all. You know, it always pisses me off. It's like this is a story about young people. This is a story about a young family. You know, it's a story. Well, in my mind, it's a story of a man trying to keep the son from his first marriage and his wife from a second marriage from killing each other. <laughs> That's all it's about. Um, but anyway, so, so, uh, so I wrote characters that were much older than, than I was at the time. And, um, and it was the Herman score, you know, and the kind of Gary needs to be sung and needs to be sung well. Um, 
once again, I'm, I say it again. I, I'm starting to feel like I put the right stuff in the book. Um, there's a there's a story in the book where where um, when we were casting a production of Lacage, the Jerry Zach's version, which I was very against. Um, I didn't like it at all, and I didn't like how it was being designed. I didn't like anything about it, and um, and Jerry and I came to an understanding as we always did. We um, were two parents of, we had this child, Lakage, and we were the best parents we could be. We, we never allowed anything to be done without both of us agreeing on it. We discussed everything. We, we never fought. We always, it was always um, uh, 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 to, to take care of our child. But in this case, I really didn't, I, I didn't like the direction it was going. And, and, and Jerry said, you know what, Harvey? Oh, because they were casting people that I wasn't that crazy about. And um, and he said, you know what, Harvey, I'm dying. I want to see this once before I die, which was the excuse he used every Thursday. I mean, remember, he had AIDS from the 1980 till, you know, and he, and he just died last year. So, so it was always, Jerry was always dying, uh, which was fine. Uh, he enjoyed it. Uh, but but it was it was the excuse I want to see this once before I die. That was I heard that a lot. So I said, "All right, Jerry, I'll make you a deal. You can have whatever you want in this production. I won't get in your way. You can have the designers and Jerry Zacks and the cast you want and all that. And I will back you up. But the next one's mine." And he said, "Fine," because he figured he'd be dead by then. He wasn't. He loved it too. But anyway, so so. We put this cast together and was sitting in the in the the marquee theater um, during a rehearsal. You know, one of the one of the ending. You know, before the dress rehearsals and and uh, during tech, I guess. And they were all singing. And he turns to me and he says, "I want to thank you. This is the best company of singers I have ever had in my in any show of my life, and it's just wonderful." And I said, "I said, Jerry." singing beautifully isn't everything you know it is in the opera but not in musical theater and he said yes it is to a composer it is and I said you telling me that you would rather have Montserrat Caballé sing Dolly instead of <sighs> instead of Carol Channing and he said yes the composer in me would rather hear Montserrat Caballé sing Hello Dolly instead of Carol oh, well and I said, okay, I think I understand you now. I don't agree with you, but I <laughs> so, so when they, so years later, when I got the phone call that, that um, they had to replace our dear darling, um, a brilliant Tony award-winning performer. <laughs> uh, nobody, nobody wanted to replace him. Well, he had just reinvented the role. You know, and this was, as I said, this was the production I wanted. Uh, um, uh, I had spoken at, at great length with David Babani, uh, who produced it at the at the Mernier Chocolate Factory, and I told him I wanted to be a CD club, not this <coughs> billion dollar mansion that they lived in. You know, who, what drag queen lives in a million dollar mansion? Well, Peggy Lee, maybe, but you know, and, and this club with these fabulous curtains, the unbelievable costumes, and girls in the chorus line of a drag club. What the fuck is wrong with you, Arthur? Um, so I, I said, I want a seedy little club 
that looks great when you turn the lights on at night, but you know, you've been, listen, you've been in off-off-Broadway theaters. You know what they look like. Yes. Yeah. They are not, they are not marble palaces, <laughs> right? And, and if you live, I mean, this was a couple that like own a grocery store, you know, they have the grocery store on the main floor and they live upstairs. You know, they have the, the drag club on the main floor and they live upstairs. This isn't a gorgeous palace upstairs. You know, they, they're dragging props up there. There's no room for the costumes backstage. They end up in the living room. You know, that's, that's what it should look like. So that when they have to clean it up for the straight people coming over, that's the joke is how do you hide all that shit? Not how do you cover the, the, the beautiful Florentine gold mirrors. Anyway, so, so I got the production I wanted, even though the two leads were heterosexuals. You can't have everything. Um, so they came to me and they said, nobody wants to replace Doug, um, the brilliant, brilliant Doug Hodge. And would you do it? And I said, no, I won't do it. I said, you're talking about singing songs. The man told me he'd rather have Montserrat Caballé than, than Carol Channing. This is like going from Carol Channing to the garbage man down the block singing these songs. You can't do that. When I, when I did Fiddler, I made um, Jerry and, and, and um, oh God, Joe and, and um, Sheldon, you know, the three creators of Fiddler. They sat in a fucking room, those poor men. And I sang the entire score to them. I said, you are not going to say, turn around and say, I didn't know how he was going to sound. You're not going to say that after I get up on that stage. You have to hear me sing the entire score. And I want your approval or your disapproval. It'll be fine. I'm just fine without doing Fiddler. But, but you have to do it. And actually... I am proud to say that I'm the very last person that the three of them approved of to play Fiddler. Oh. Lost two of them right after I did it, and and Sheldon's still around, thankfully. But I'm I'm the last I'm the last approved Tevya, and they hung out a lot with me backstage. It was wonderful doing Fiddler. That's another whole story. But um, so I said. I want Jerry to hear me sing these songs. So I called Jerry up on the phone and I said, just like with the boys, you have to hear. And he said, Harvey, no. I said, no, I can't do it, good. I said, no, 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 I don't have to hear you sing it. You go ahead and do it. I said, Jerry, are you kidding me? You know what, the, the, and he said, Harvey, if you don't do it, the show will close. I'd rather have the show run. I said, well, that's not really a vote of confidence, but. Uh, <laughs> But, we, you know, we had that kind of relationship that could be that honest and that wonderful. So I went into it um, with as open a heart and mind as I could, you know, and, and, um, and it was really, really fascinating. It was fascinating to rediscover, to, to say those words out loud and to be able to take out what Arthur had added. You know, if Arthur had added a word or added a line, I was able to take it out. I went back. I couldn't find a lot of my old notes. We didn't have computers in those days, so everything was on paper. But I did remember some old jokes that I had been cut out, and I slipped them back in. And um, and I and because I was going to be older than Christopher Sieber, you notice how I'm skipping right over somebody else who played the role in it. <laughs> Um, 
because uh, uh, I was going to be older than Christopher. I was. I added lines about being an older woman, and and um, I, I had so much fun with it because um, Doug Hodge had done some really fun things in the title number. He 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 improvised, uh, not improvised. He, he impersonated uh, Edith Piaf, and um, he did some marvelous things. And I said, oh, you know, what if? Um, Charles Pierce had played this role. You know who Charles Pierce is? He's yes, a, yeah, the impersonator. What if he was playing Lakash? And so I added in um, doing this, this Marlene Dietrich, I would like to sing a song for you now. The song I sang in Dobawa. I sang it in Berwin. I sang it in Dallas. I sing it for you now. Um, so I edited stuff like that, and I and I had a blast with it, an absolute, uh, absolute blast. Um, you know, unfortunately, because of that other actor, we had lost our momentum. Oh. And by the time Christopher came in, it was already January, the, you know, the dregs of January, January, February, and then all the new shows were opening. So we really didn't have a chance after, you know, we had that moment that we could have hit, um, but because of that other actor, we didn't. But in the long run, am I glad I did it? Yes, I loved doing it. I loved being part of that company. I loved telling that story. I loved working with Christopher Sieber. Of course, everyone does. Um, and uh, and it was just one of those dream jobs. I wish it had it had more of a chance to to have been. And then Christopher went off on the road and did it. But he played Alban. We switched, he switched roles. George Hamilton came in and played. Uh, so we now had an 85 year old George. <laughs> and, and Christopher playing the other role. Uh, well, um, a musical I'm very curious about is one that was more um, more short lived than La Cajo Fall, which was Legs Diamond. And so how did that, how did you sort of come in on that with Peter? Okay. Well, this, uh, is that the, because it's, it's already noon. So we, we got, is that the last question you want to ask? Is that the one that's important to you? Is that the one that will make sure you never regret that you didn't get more out of me? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. All right, thanks, Diamond. I will tell you the tale. There's an, actually a chapter in the book called, Yes, I Wrote Legs Diamond, What of It? <laughs> <laughs> My friend Robert Allen Ackerman, who had directed Torch Song in London, called me up. I was just, I had just done Safe Sex. I think we were making the movie of Safe Sex and uh, about to make the movie of Torch Song. And he called me up and he said, I'm doing the show with Peter Allen, Legs Diamond. And I said, good luck, Mary. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. Charles Supan, who was his best friend, was writing the book. Uh, but Charles had AIDS and was at that point um, having dementia. So he couldn't really continue writing the book. He, he, he was no longer there. Um, and uh, they had done workshops and it was not going well. So I read it and I said, this is awful. This is just God awful. Why would, like, why would Peter Allen want to play this ad? I mean, I watched the original movie which was a terrible black and white movie. And why would you want to make a musical out of it? That's what he wants to do. Well, it's a stupid idea, leave me alone. Just hear me out. It's Peter Allen. It's Peter Allen. All we have to do is put him on stage, let him shake his ass and sing a song, we'll make a fortune, go home and just cash the checks. I said, you gotta give somebody something. It's Peter Allen, he's gonna write all the songs. He'll write all the songs for himself. He'll come out, he'll sing his songs, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, trust me. I said, it's not going to be fine. It's a terrible idea. I've got a great idea. 
I'm working with this designer. And he's and what we're gonna do is we're gonna do the show in in regular lighting, but when it comes to a musical number, all the stage lights will switch into day glow. And everything's gonna be painted fluorescent. And so what looked like a doorway becomes a stairway. And what looked like this becomes that. And people's costumes can change. And, and we can do all this magical stuff. Um, and you can do chase scenes and all that in this black lighting. And then it comes back to reality. And I thought, let me give it a try. So I sat down at the, at the typewriter and I wrote what I think, you can look it up, but I think I called it the completely fictional, uh, uh, hysterical history of Legs Diamond, something like that. You know, just saying this is, don't take this seriously at all. And I wrote, and I wrote scenes with lots of car chases and people shooting guns, you know, because they, they told me the bullets could be, you know, you could see the bullets fly across the stage and, and escapes, you know, lots of escapes and, and chases and stuff like that. And I even put in magic acts. I made him like um, have a magic act too, and uh, to make people disappear and um, and all this stuff. And and in fact, Act One ended with him being shot. So Act Two opened at his funeral, with him in a coffin, and and then he stands up and says, "Hi everybody," and they say, "Wait a second, I killed you." He said, "I'm in show business. Only a critic can kill me," so, which is the only line that ever got a laugh in that show. Um, anyway, so I wrote this whole thing. The producers looked at it and went, fabulous. This, this, well, let's do it. And off they went to do it. And off I went to do my, the movie of, of Safe Sex for HBO. And then the movie of Torch Song. And I come back to New York and they're in rehearsal. And I walk into the rehearsal room and they're doing some number or whatever. And um, I look at the set and I said, where's all the special effects stuff? Oh, uh, we decided we couldn't do any of that. What do you mean you can't do any of that? The whole show's based on that. Well, we can't do it. I said, but it's not going to work. It's a stupid fucking show. This couldn't be dumber. This is a stupid idea for a show. It couldn't be dumber if it's not going to look like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, which is basically what I wrote. You got nothing. And then oh, guess what happened? Nothing. nothing. It was a bomb. <laughs> Couldn't you know? We rewrote. We tried to. I did everything I could. Peter, love him, um, was a cabaret performer. He could even pull off the stage of Radio City Music Hall with the Rockettes. But put, but that's as Peter Allen. Put him in a role, and it was like, you know, an audience can sense when you're scared. Yeah. And that's all you felt from him was fear. He came out on stage and it was flop sweat. And the audience who had paid all this money to see him didn't want to see him. And it was terrible. It was, it was, it was really sad. Um, there was no way to save it. I, I added characters, I cut characters, I added jokes, I cut jokes. I said, bring in a joke writer, do anything you can. Let's, you know. The only thing that would have saved the show was not doing it <laughs> or, or replacing Peter. Yeah. And Jimmy Needlander was not gonna replace Peter. Um, his understudy or standby was, was Larry Kurt. Oh. 
and Larry Kurt did a rehearsal and was wonderful. Not that it was a good show, <laughs> a good show here, but it was wonderful. But he was wonderful in it. And had he play, had we switched it out, but Jimmy Needlander said, I put this show on for Peter and I'm not gonna fire him from his own show. Yeah. So we limped along for a while and, and, and now the theater is a church. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yes, yeah. So I'd love to, if I can just close by asking you uh, just one final uh, thing. Uh, <laughs> yes, what? One more thing. Ask me one more. To end, um, what has this um what has this quarantine been like for you as a as an artist, as a person and sort of coming out of it? Oh, it's it's well, it's been wonderful for me because I'm a hermit anyway. Um, so there really wasn't much of a difference. The great part was instead of having to go to family dinners and stuff like that, or see shows that I didn't want to see, I had this great excuse. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hit you with the chair. Charlie's been under me the entire time with this. See, Charlie's been sitting there under me the whole time. Um, so, so yes, for Hermit, for me, I've had this great excuse of, oh, I can't come because of COVID. Sorry, I can't travel because of COVID. Sorry, I also uh, wrote wrote my book. Um, um, I was able to. I had a bunch of projects that needed work, you know, that I had to get work done on. So I had no excuse not to to work on them. Um, I still saw all of my friends. Well, the friends up here, I didn't see many friends in the city, but my I I've only been in the city once since the last time I was in the city was for. Mark, either Marlon Lyon or Jerry Herman's uh, memorial service. I forget which one died after, but they were sort of close to each other. And so whoever's, whichever one of those two was the last memorial service was the last time I was in the city. And, um, and, then, I, and then I just went into the city for another funeral um, a few weeks ago, but otherwise I still haven't been, I haven't seen any of these shows. Um, but I also figured that, that uh, January, and February, as you know, are slow on Broadway, yeah. and um, and they'll need my money <laughs> more than they need it right now. So I'll go see everything. I was just said that to Lapone. I said, "Do you want me to come to opening night, or would you rather I came and filled in some seats in January?" Should come in January. I said, okay. So so it's been great because uh, I I wouldn't have written my my autobiography um, without it. Um, I got the, the changes I wanted done on Funny Girl. We start rehearsal in five weeks. Oh wow! Weeks. Um, I, um, I'm writing a show with with uh, with Mencken and and uh, Feldman. Another show. So, I, we, so we got a lot of work done. Yeah, yeah, I do. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing Funny Girl. I have my tickets for April. Um, oh, you do already? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. All right. I appreciate you're, it. You're very welcome. And um and 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 and, and, and have a good life. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you liked what you heard, please remember to leave an iTunes review. And remember to come back next week when I'm joined by Broadway musical director David Loud. David Loud appeared in the original Broadway casts of Merrily We Roll Along and Masterclass, and he served as musical director on The Visit, Company, She Loves Me, Steel Pier, Ragtime, A Class Act, The Boys from Syracuse, Curtains, Sondheim on Sondheim, and more. 
as well as conceiving the Burt Bacharach review, The Look of Love. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.